This is an ABC podcast. Now, ordinarily, that sound signals uh, that I'm about to be involved in a conversation about which I know nothing. But this week, it signals that more emphatically than ever before, because Scott has chosen a doozy of a topic um, in which I suspect the role I will play will be that of um, completely dumbstruck onlooker while Scott tries to explain to me what it is that we're talking about. I do gather, however, that it's frightfully important stuff, um, which is why Scott has been so insistent that we talk about this. The Scott I'm referring to, of course, is Scott Stevens. I am Waleed Ali, um, and this is a show called The Minefield, if you've never heard it before. This is perhaps an odd place to start. I'll give you that. Um, but welcome. <laughs> we'll have anyone. Um, and we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this show. This is, I would call this one of the ethical and moral dilemmas of hyper-modern life, Scott. How wow, do you like that? Very nice. Ethical dilemmas of hyper-modern life. Love it. Um, yeah. if, if, if it's up to me, though, to carry mm. the, I don't know, the intellectual heft of this particular topic, we are done for. Um, because, I mean, on this particular episode, we are boldly blundering where our show has no, <laughs> never gone before. We're actually going into the world of international finance and digital currencies. And given the fact that I know nothing about digital currencies, I know even less about blockchain technology, and I'm still trying to get my head around banking, uh, then this is a really kind of unusual topic for us to be doing. But Waleed, were it not for the fact that in June this year, and although I, I do suspect, and I want to come to it in a second, I do suspect that there were some intimations of this in March this year, were it not for the fact that Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced that his company, Facebook, uh, and a consortium of partner uh, organizations were going to launch a digital currency in 2020, I don't think we would be bold enough to go near this topic. But they have, and because Facebook is involved, and because it's Facebook, and because we tend to talk a fair bit about the deleterious, the corrosive effect that Facebook's involvement in the information economy has had in our public life, I think this is a really interesting development, not just because it impinges upon some of our conceptions about the ethics of money and the nature of monetary and transactional relationships, but because uh, I'm going to say something kind of risky here. I think that Facebook's involvement in the world of digital currencies could be the best news that we've heard about democratic politics in the better part of eight years. I think this Get could out. be- a no. fabulous, fabulous development. I'm blown away that, that that's not that's not the Scott Stephen angles on things with with I'm, a nice sorry. big asterisk. I, I'm, I messed up my messed up my s's then. That's not the Scott <laughs> Stevens angle on things. That's what I meant to say. With a, with a nice big asterisk against that though, saying I'm subject to correction just in case my na naivety has gotten the better of okay, me. Okay, oh, okay. So how about we do it like this? How about you take me through your argument? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll just keep asking questions as you go and making comments as you go to see whether or not your argument seems convincing yep. to someone coming at it relatively cold. How okay. about that? That sounds, that sounds All right. good. All right, let's go. So firstly, this digital currency, uh, it's called Libra. Let me just read to you, Waleed, from the Libra Association white paper that was released last month. Notice, by the way, that governments 
produce white papers, not ordinarily mm. policy that, uh, you know, organizations like Facebook corporations, for-profit corporations don't usually produce white papers, but here you Is are. that our first clue as to it what may, precisely is at stake here? It may well be. Okay. So here's, here's what Facebook says, or the, the Libra Association, I should say. This is what they say. Securing your financial assets on your mobile device should be simple and intuitive. Moving money around globally should be as easy and cost-effective as, and even more safe and secure than, sending a text message or sharing a photo, no matter where you live, what you do, or how much you earn. Now is the time to create a new kind of digital currency built on the foundation of blockchain technology. The mission for Libra is a simple global currency and financial structure that empowers billions of people. I mean, all of that, Waleed, is dripping in the kind of rhetoric that we're used to seeing from Facebook. That what but also, Facebook- it feels to me like it means nothing. Uh well, no, I think it actually means a great deal because what it's okay. trying to stress is, firstly, because we want a new form of digital global infrastructure, there are surely only a handful of corporations in the world that could manage this something on this kind of scale. And when you say handful, what you really mean is one. No one has the audience, no one has the customer base, no one has the global reach. No company, in fact, can make a claim for being genuinely global quite like Facebook can. Maybe Google, but even then, I mean, Facebook has, what is it now, Willie? A two and a half billion active users. So there is something already in the direction of scale that it's gesturing towards, but there's also something else, and I thought you would have picked it up immediately. Convenience. Hmm. Convenience. Uh, moving money around should be simple and intuitive. It should be as safe and it should be as easy as sending a message or sharing a photo. So if you like, this is a kind of job pitch. This is a kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're putting forward their case for the role. This is a need. We're the only ones who can fill it. Um, but obviously you run up immediately with the problem of trust. The Facebook has been on the front at the top of news stories for what coming up to 20, 21 months now. There have been a succession of democratic and political and privacy-based failures that Facebook has either been in charge of or presided over or overtly minimized in the way that they engaged with the public. So the other thing that Facebook has done is they've gathered together with a number of other corporations, so financial institutions or lending bodies like MasterCard and PayPal and Visa, digital platforms like eBay, Spotify and Uber, uh, telecoms, venture capitalists, and nonprofit organizations to try to say that we're going to come together to guarantee the trustworthy offering of something like a digital currency that is going to interact seamlessly with a new form of digital infrastructure that's going to allow the frictionless, the seamless, and most importantly, the cheapest. In other words, kind of taking away so many of the extortionary fees that often go along with so much global money transfer. Now, here's what's interesting to me, though, Waleed. Hang on, hang on. There's a lot that's interesting about that. Yeah. Um, So you're saying there's a trust deficit. Clearly, there is a trust deficit. Deficit. Who in their and right mind would trust Facebook with something like this when something as sensitive as people's money is involved? You're right, particularly when they have shown uh, over and over that faced with a quite serious civil, well, I was going to say obligation, they clearly feel free of those obligations, but a quite serious civil phenomenon, they don't seem to care. They talk about it as though they care, but then 
ultimately they don't seem to. When you say civil obligation, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about what we've seen with the way that our information streams become corrupted, that elections become hacked and so on. The more we learn about this, the more we seem to discover that Facebook knew more than they said they did and didn't do anything about it. Didn't even particularly seem to care to do anything about it. Maybe they didn't understand exactly what they were looking at. I personally am skeptical of that. Um, But this is not an organization that I think has any trust as far as being civically minded is concerned. It will always talk the language of freedom and connection and all these sorts of things, but that is not its uh, overriding ethos. The move fast and break things ethos, I think, still very much prevails. Mm -hmm. Perhaps somewhere under an ethos of make money any way that you can. You say that that trust deficit is somehow being ameliorated by the partnerships that include such organizations as Spotify and Uber. (laughs) Really? (laughs) I'm not saying that the trust deficit is ameliorated. What I'm saying is part of their pitch is it's not just us. There are a lot of people to whom we're accountable. It's also other organizations that (laughs) as a result of this new kind of rent-seeking capitalism (laughs) exploit all kinds of people. Is that what you mean? Yep. Okay. All right. Well, so that's the start. That's the foundation that you've laid for this. In addition to the fact that we are, it seems to me, talking, well, by definition, necessarily, talking about privatized money. Mm, that we are going to need the guest for. I'm not signaling we bring the guest no, in. But it now, definitely but is, right? There's no well, argument that it's not privatized money. Well, well, is there? well, well to some extent, because the idea is members of the Libra Association essentially buy into a reserve, a reserve of diversified currencies that go into a nice big pot that are then invested in stable institutions. The revenue or the interest from those deposits, and I think it's a $10 million buy-in by each one of these companies, by each one of these hundred companies that make up the Libra Association, uh, the the interest from that buy-in. So it's real money. It's real money from diversified currencies. Uh, or a diverse range of cur- currencies, the interest then goes back to the Libra Association. So in, in some way, I mean, that's one of the big forms of revenue. There's a huge pot of actual money that's there. And then it's out of that big pot of money that constitutes the well of value that Libra coins are then, quote unquote, minted. So so it's not- So you're saying it's different to Bitcoin? Yes. Yes, I am. Right. Okay. So it's tied to- Actual government-backed currency. Yes, that's right. And then converted into a digital form that can be traded frictionlessly. That's, that's the exactly idea of it. Right. That, so, so that's why I'm not sure that this is money. It's mm-hmm. more like- Well, it is though. It sounds yeah, like you're it saying it's, it's, it's more money than Bitcoin is. Yes. Yes. I think that's, I think that's, that's right. Here's the thing, Waleed. Now, look, you understand everything that I've just said. I'm not arguing for any of this. Uh, I'm a little bit skeptical about some of the claims that have been made that this is the Facebook empire trying to mint its first coin. I don't, I, I don't think it's that. I don't think it's Facebook beginning to act like a government. What it is, I mean, we have been relentlessly critical, me perhaps even more than you, about Facebook's behavior in the domain of what's often called surveillance capitalism. In other words, by being the biggest player in the modern attention economy, Facebook has been not just agnostic, they've been overtly promiscuous about the kind of information that they exploit, that they use on their platforms to gain as many eyes as they can, to fix people's attention for as long as they can so that they can monitor 
and, and convert user data into a kind of predictive mechanism that they can then sell on to advertisers. So the, the information itself, whether it be far right wing anti-Semitic tropes or whether it be, um, save the whale, uh, far left green, you know, uh, Facebook messages, whatever it is, it doesn't matter as long as it gets people to the platform, keeps their attention. They're completely agnostic about the character, the quality, the value, the corrosiveness, or the, um, or the beneficial quality of any of that information. So that's Which is to say they are blind to the civil dimensions yes, of what it is that they're doing. That's exactly right. Now, back in March this year, Mark Zuckerberg, on the back of this endless series of scandals within which Facebook has been embroiled, Mark Zuckerberg announced in a post that Facebook wanted to get out, essentially, of the information economy. They want to evacuate the public square. They no longer want to be one of the producers or the circulators of news or otherwise, you know, uh, of information-based uh, material. Instead, they want to pivot back, he said, away from the town square and back to the privacy of the living room. It's a really interesting move that he announced. On the back of that, he said, by recovering the importance of the privacy of people's information, the importance of um, I- encrypted end-to-end communication, we want to make people feel secure once again about sharing things that they care about, with people that they care about, and even making seamless transitions, or sorry, seamless transactions on those same private platforms. In other words, if it's true that Facebook is trying to get out of the information economy, if they're trying to abandon their existing business model, which I think has been absolutely catastrophic for our civic life, then they need a new form of revenue. And if their new form of revenue is to move away from the information economy and to move into essentially transactional relationships with people that you know in private communications and then seamlessly transitioning to making payments, then I think this may well be the best thing that could have happened to our democratic culture precisely because they're trying to move away from their money-making method to date and to adopt a new form of far more accountable money-making, namely in the form of the Libra currency. This could be one of the best bits of news that we've gotten about the, uh, about the reclaimability of our civic culture that we've heard. Do they suddenly not have access to all the data that they have on all of its users? That is the big question, isn't it? If they can then marry their financial services through the wallet that they need to produce called Calibra, if they marry their financial services with the existing user data that they have, then there are huge reasons for concern. They've said they won't. They said there needs to be an absolute firewall between them. That's where the trust comes in. Mm. Fair to say I'm not yet convinced. Can we put it that way? Yep. Okay. We do have a guest, though, who might set me or you or Everyone, straight. We'll get to him in just a second. This is The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN. You might be doing that right now. We do have a podcast, though. It includes uh, additional discussion 
between Scott and our guest and myself because we find that 25 minutes just isn't enough. So we just keep going for a little bit and you can listen to the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app. You can also subscribe to The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. Scott. Our guest. Thank God we have a guest that knows what he's talking about. Ross Buckley <laughs> is Scientia Professor and the King and Wood Malison's Chair of Disruptive Innovation at the University of New South Wales, which sounds like exactly the right guy for the show. Ross, thanks so much for coming on The Minefield. My pleasure, Scott. So, so look, let's, let's try to get some of our definitions right. And let's begin maybe with what Libra is not. I made reference before to the fact that all sorts of critics have said that this is Facebook behaving like a nation state, uh, behaving, if you like, like an empire and minting its own sovereign coin. Is Libra money or is it the logical extension of the need for a fluid frictionless, digitally integrated method of financial exchange and transfer. I find myself consumed with jealousy, Scott. I really want some of what the ABC has been handing out and you've been smoking, having read that white paper. But uh, I can't get wow. my mind onto the, onto the question. I'm so jealous. <laughs> Come on. That, that's the most colourful smackdown I think we've ever had on the oh show. My. To answer your question, mate, um, whether it's money is a rabbit hole, we don't really want to go down because that gets us into all sorts of difficult questions. But it certainly functions as money in a way that Bitcoin doesn't function as money, right? The classic definition of money is it's got to be a medium of exchange, a unit of account, and a store of value. Money serves those three functions. Bitcoin only serves the first one. It only serves as a medium of exchange. It can't be a unit of account or a store of value because it's price value it jumps around far too much because its supply is limited. You were right when you said the value of Libra is going to be tied to this basket of reputable sovereign currencies. So it will it will work as well as a medium of exchange, a unit of account, a store of value. It'll function as money. Is that the end of that then? Well, well yes, but okay, let's, let's get directly. I'm doing my best. I guess I feel a certain degree of, because I care so much about civic discourse and about the purification or the restoration of something like our public spaces. This is why I don't see it necessarily as a bad thing for Facebook to be getting out of the surveillance economy and into something that looks a lot more like the straight up and down economy. Where is it that you think that the white paper is essentially a smokescreen? The entire white paper, it's, it's very shallow on details. Facebook's an enormously sophisticated organisation. They've got endless resources. It says very little. It's deliberately vague. And um, it's, it doesn't, it, the, the description of the Libra Association is, doesn't even comply with Swiss law. You know, the Libra Association under Swiss law can't do what it, white paper says you know, it's going to do. A different organisation called Libra Networks will have to do that. It's, the association is the wrong sort of corporate entity in Switzerland to do what they say it's going to do. It's, it, and it also, the white paper really um, pushes the line that, that you have swallowed, which is this is about helping the poor in poor countries. And that's the, you know, the push. Um, and I think it's right in the sense this will first take off in poor countries because in a lot of countries to pay your electricity bill, you've got to catch the bus for four hours and line up for another two hours, right? I mean, people who have no financial services struggle just in life and this will provide that in a lot of poor countries. It's This is just mobile money on the Kenyan M-Pesa model mm. and Zuckerberg went to Kenya nearly three years ago and studied um, how mobile money works over there. So, 
it'll be welcomed by the regulators in poor countries because they know their people need it and it'll start to flourish there. But in my opinion, that is not Facebook's primary target at all. Before we get to Facebook's primary target, though, so it took me a while because I just don't understand this stuff. It took me a while to understand how is it if people are already alienated from financial services, if there's already such difficulty in either getting to the bank or depositing money in the bank, how is this going to make anything better? And then it kind of dawned on me, I suppose, that what we're talking about is essentially perhaps government payments or employer payments being transferred into Libra effectively, or being converted into Libra and then being paid into a kind of credit account uh, through which their various employees access on their smartphones or whatever. Is this is this what we're talking about, that suddenly the new yes. form of income in which people in these uh, countries that Facebook has not traditionally had, if you like, a large consumer base or a large, uh, that they're suddenly now going to be interacting with various products and services by means of Libra? Yes, absolutely. And that's where a lot of the supply will come. I mean, for instance, India has had a big push for digital identity and it's done it because in some Indian states, they were losing 40% of government welfare payments to what they euphemistically term leakage, what you and I would call corruption, hmm. because it's a paper-based system with a large illiterate you know, proportion of the population. So if you convert your you know, Indian currency into digital currency, then you've got an auditable trail. The government can send it out. It appears on people in people's wallets, on people's phones. Um, yeah, that's why developing country, one of the reasons developing country governments will support it. And that's a big way that poor people, you know, welfare transfer payments is a big way that poor people in their countries will end up getting Libra. That also then raises the question, though, about remittances. So people in the developed world sending money back. That's another, I mean, that's been another, surely that's, that's another strong point. That's another huge source of demand. Another reason I strongly believe this will take off in some developing countries. If you're a remittance-dependent economy, like say in Australia now, uh, if you're a Pacific Islander working in our farms picking fruit, you will typically spend 7 or 8%, maybe 10% to send the money home. So you've earned $500, it'll cost you $50 to mm. send it back mm. to Tonga or Samoa. That's absurd. That's utterly absurd in the modern world. It's an area that's really ripe for disruption. It's like taxis before Uber, right? Before Uber, taxi drivers, you know, taxis were old, they were clapped out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's ripe for disruption and Libra will disrupt it. Libra will provide a much, much more efficient remittance, you know, service than anything we've got at the moment. Mm. So what exactly is your concern then, Ross? Because, you know, you can say it's not their primary target, but if this is the major benefit that falls out of it, these seem like very substantial benefits. You'd be looking for very serious downsides to counter that, wouldn't you? I think their primary target is the US financial system. Wow. You know, this is, <laughs> this is Facebook's play to be a bank and to be a bank using better data than any bank has today. Facebook's already got magnificent data from its social media you know, operations, but this will combine the payments data with the social media data. And, uh, you know, it might also be their play for the Indian financial system and a few other small ones like that. But ultimately, you know, there's nothing in Facebook's track record to suggest that it's particularly charitable. And, uh, you know, the, in the modern world, the entity with the best data and the best analysis of that data wins in the game of pricing credit, pricing, you know, loans, pricing insurance. And so just, paint, just very quickly, though, because we're running out of yeah. time for the radio bit, and we will pick up extra stuff in the podcast, but yeah. paint us the doomsday scenario then. 
of what happens if they are successful in doing that? It's not necessarily a doomsday scenario, but I don't believe their white paper has been honest. I think what they want to do is combine the data they've already got with the data they get from these payments. That will allow them to price loans more accurately than anybody else in the market and will equip them to really you know, do wonderfully well for themselves in providing financial services. Is better the, priced loans a good thing? Yeah, it's a good thing for consumers. It's, um, you know, should be very worrying for the incumbent banks, uh, you know, but depending how Facebook plays it, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not what Facebook is saying it's aiming for. Mm. I, don't, I don't know about you, Waleed, but the idea of competitively priced loans combined with user data and then tailor-made loan pitches to people who have displayed through their online activity. I mean, that, that for me begins to, the sky gets very dark when I think about that. Well, the sky was so sunny at the start of the show for you, Scott. I'm very disappointed. <laughs> See what you've done, Ross? We have to stop now because it's, gonna, it's getting too dark. But we will uh, pick this up in the podcast extra of the show. The radio portion of the minefield is now at an end. Ross Buckley, King and Wood Mallison's Chair of Disruptive Innovation at the University of New South Wales, is our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, the radio portion of which is now at an end. And we'll be back on the radio next week and the podcast right now. This is wonderful. So, Ross, yeah. just to, I don't know, I'm feeling a little bit deflated, not because you've suddenly punctured all of my hopes. I didn't actually, I wasn't meaning to buy in too much to the rhetoric of, of the white <laughs> paper. But if this is a scandal-ridden corporation wanting to evacuate a tremendously lucrative area by finding a stable source of revenue, either in the form of the interest from the massive deposits that go into the Libra Association reserves and through some kind of recovery of private and secured transactions and communications. I mean, can you at least meet me halfway and say this could have a very, very, very good benefit to our civic discourse and our public culture if Facebook leaves or loses the surveillance capitalist model that they've dominated for the better part of a decade and a half? Oh, yes, I couldn't agree more with that proposition. Yeah, that would be absolutely wonderful. Uh, but <laughs> depends how much you believe Facebook wants to do that. This is also the gentleman who, when he was, you know, requested to appear before the British House of Commons, just gave them the middle finger. I mean, there's not a lot of civic high-mindedness in this organisation, I don't think. But if they truly want to stop messing with our democratic institutions and just focus on making money honestly, that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Except aren't we saying we'll take them ceasing to mess with our democratic institutions as long as they just mess with our financial ones? This is a big problem for regulators. That's why you see all the pushback from regulators around the world. This, If my understanding is right in rich countries, this is a fundamentally game-changing change to the way the financial system works. So it's a huge challenge for regulators to manage this. Even in poor countries, certainly, yes, it offers an awful lot of benefits to developing nations, but it also will very quickly take monetary policy away from developing country governments, right? They won't be able to 
they won't control the interest rate anymore. They won't be able to raise the interest rate to slow things down in an overheating situation. They won't be able to lower interest rates to uh, stimulate the economy. They won't be able to impose capital controls to stop capital flight. When there's crisis, money typically runs away on fast legs from poor countries. And governments cope with that by putting a fence, a capital control up around them to keep the money at home. They won't be able to do that. So even for the, for the poor countries for which this has a lot of benefits for sure, it also takes away a number of levers from government. Um, so are you say, sorry if this is a really crude and ill-fitting analogy, but are you saying in a similar way to the way that the creation of the euro had deleterious effects on some economies, particularly um, weaker economies within the eurozone, that their currency had effectively changed in a way that meant that the mechanics of their whole economy and the trade balance and all these sorts of things changed and slipped beyond their control? Yeah, that's a, it's a long bow to draw, but it's a good analogy, yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a game changer again for developing countries. I think generally their regulators will welcome it in those contexts because financial inclusion is so important for their poor people. But it is going to be, if, if Libra really takes off, and I think it will take off initially in poor countries, and I think it'll take off more slowly in Australia than most places because our pay wave payments are so convenient and so comprehensive. Mm. But I, I don't believe... so. It, the good news is Australia is not the major target by any means, um, but I don't really believe that assisting poor countries is the major impetus well, for this pay either. Paywave is fairly convenient in America as well. Why would it take off in America if you're assuming that's their major target? Because the American financial system is really fractured and sort of dysfunctional in a lot of ways. And, you know, PayWave works in some parts of the country and not others. I mean, they still write checks to an extraordinary extent. And in it's much more painful being a financial services consumer in America than it is in Australia. There's a lot more pain points. There's a lot more scope to improve things. So it strikes me that there are likely two ways that this is going to progress. Ross, I'm subject to being corrected on both points. Yep. So either government representatives, having been lobbied strongly by financial services industries, will kill this dead. I mean, this is, we've already seen, I think, some intimations of this in the recent congressional hearings that uh, David Marcus, the former PayPal executive yep. who's had to sort of front some very, very angry Democratic senators or, or congressmen. Anyway, either this is going to be stopped dead by politicians who simply do not trust Facebook with something as sensitive as money and politicians who are going to be keenly attuned to the wishes of the financial industries sector. Or... What's the harm that a little innovation, a little bit of disruption can do? And the modern cult of convenience makes this catch on like wildfire. And it simply goes. And because we've become accustomed to it and because, uh, as Walid always reminds us, convenience is the king that rules the modern world. It's something, if you like, that becomes indispensable before it begins biting. Now, those are the two, I think, worst options? Because as you said before, there is some disruption that's here to be done. Is there some way of proceeding more, I don't know, conscientiously, more uh, judiciously that gets the best, if you like, of the offerings, but that steers away from either one of those pitfalls? Yeah, there probably is a middle ground. Um, and you're right. The governments could stop it. I think, unless, I'm not going to predict what the US may do, but Generally, governments are loath to really clamp down on innovation because it's impossible to predict which innovations are going to serve society and uh, 
you know, you don't want to stop it. But I think the middle ground is to bring strong regulation to bear on this, to slow it down, to give the regulators time to adapt. This is a game-changing change. And, uh, you know, the obvious way to do that would be to really focus on the anti-money laundering, countering the financing of terrorism requirements in signing up customers. Customers will have to be cleared to make sure that this is not a conduit for sending mm. money to criminals or to terrorists. And I would expect regulators around the world to be very rigorous in ensuring that and using that as a break, making sure Facebook is ticking literally every last box on the forms. They need to slow it down so they can adjust. Hmm, interesting. But not kill it, just slow it. And then if that doesn't work, how this gets treated regulatorily is a very complicated issue. And there's quite a lot of other levers the regulators could pull as well. This is where I begin to get very worried because I think Australia is a very good example of this. You know, the way our parliament has tried to deal with technological issues, particularly as they intersect with security. So mm -hmm. sort of yeah. the encryption bill, for example, you get the sense of a political class that is trying, for reasons with which I sympathise greatly, by the way, um, trying to pass laws in relation to something they just do not understand. They are not savvy with the rapid fire technological advances that they're being asked to think about and legislate. Or regulate, and so the idea of doing it, doing this slowly—that sounds good in theory, but that only works if you actually know what you're doing, doesn't it? And so the, you know, the, the the alternative to that becomes that things happen quickly, because you ultimately don't really know any other way to slow it down. Yep, that's definitely a risk. There's another potential response by government to this as well, and it came out recently. China has been doing a lot of work on the idea of a central bank digital currency, so a digital renminbi issued by the People's Bank of China, which would be you know, a direct competitor for Libra. And after the Libra announcement, the central bank of China said they were going to proceed with that. Interesting. Now, a, a lot of central banks around the world have been working on it, particularly Canada's and Britain and England's. Um, I think that may be a, the ultimate response from government, that they will create their own digital currencies, you know, digital pound sterling, digital Canadian dollars. And uh, th that's been being worked on for a few years. No government has wanted to pull the trigger because, again, it's such a fundamental game changer. You know, it's hard to conceptualise what the financial system would look like with that in place. But that would probably simply remove any need for Libra. And just put now, it out. What of would be the difference between, say, digital Australian dollars or digital pounds and what we have now, which is that we can move real pounds and real dollars digitally very easily anyway? But we do it through commercial banks, and this right. would effectively be every citizen probably having some form of account with the Reserve Bank of Australia. Wow. Hmm. So at the moment, the only entities that get to deal with central bank money in Australia are the commercial banks and a few of the multilateral organisations, the multinational development banks, those sorts of people. But everybody else deals in commercial bank money. This would be everybody dealing in central bank money. But when I try to think through it, it gives me a headache. You know, it, it's such a profound change to our system. Um, but it would be one potential government response to Libra. It was probably going to happen anyway. Sweden is probably going to do it within four years because cash is just disappearing in Sweden at a rapid rate of knots. And uh, 
if the Swedish central bank doesn't respond to the disappearance of cash, it means it's going to leave all of its payments up to Visa and MasterCard for the whole economy, and they clearly don't want to do that. So it was probably always going to start to happen in four years. Libra might accelerate it. What this all presumes, though, is that these governments who are trying to head Libra off at the pass, if you like, will be able to come up with some kind of user interface that will be as intuitive, as integrated with existing platforms uh, as whatever it is that Facebook comes up with. And I'm not sure the governments have demonstrated they're able to do that yet. Yep. That's a really good point. Um, China has a lot of this already with Alipay and WeChat Pay. Mm, that's right? true. And uh, so China's the obvious place to do it. It, a central bank digital currency. The Chinese government loves two things. It loves information about its citizens and control over its citizens. And a digital currency would give it much more of both of those things. So I've thought for a while China would be the first mover. If China moves, pretty much other governments around the world have to move. They're not going to let but, China have that big an advantage. Right. So that leaves the developing economies that we're talking about probably don't have the resources to pull off something like that. Correct me if that's wrong. No, I agree. Right. Okay. So that then leaves them. Um, Are we in a situation then where, so Libra becomes a developing economy or a developing world digital currency. What level of control over developing economies would that ultimately give Mm. Facebook? Now it's getting scary again, potentially, isn't it? <laughs> well, this is the one benefit. This is the one beacon that we've been um, talking about. That's right. And have we just made it scary? I think we possibly have, yes. I mean, it'll have benefits in for poor countries. Without question, it'll have benefits. But it's going to make their own control of their economies much more difficult. And the problem is how much information it'll place in the hands of Facebook. Now, Facebook in the white paper says that, you know, it's only one among potentially 100 members of the association and it's going to be separated and all the rest of it. But I don't really buy that. I mean, that's as simple as a privacy policy. And sure, the first privacy policy might say that. And the second privacy policy issued six months later might say that. And then the third version of the policy, which is just, here's a changes to our policy, please read and tick the box. We'll, yep. we'll start to let Facebook have access to the information. So are we turning then developing countries into clients of Facebook effectively? A long time ago, Mark Zuckerberg said in a famous quote, Facebook is more like a government than Mm. a corporation. I think this is Facebook's move into being a government. Because another thing we haven't mentioned is that all of this, the way you'll get Libra is you'll go in and you'll give a whole lot of cash and you'll get a whole lot of Libra. Libra Association then takes your cash and puts it on deposit with some bank or some puts it into liquid government bonds. But it doesn't give any of the interest it gets on that money back to you. It Mm. keeps it. That's right. right? Mm. Now, that's analogous to the profits that every central bank makes when it issues its own currency. Those profits are called seniorage. It's quite profitable to print money. But Facebook is inserting itself into that traditional central bank income stream. This is Facebook's move into being a government, I think. That's the big it's very clever. It's very strategic. You know, who would not want to be have all the benefits of a government? Of course, without any of the obligations of a government, you don't, nobody's suggesting Facebook's going to be paying welfare to poor people or running public hospitals or anything. It's just taking out the good parts. Though, sorry, the problem is the nightmare scenario that's been held up by so many people who've tried to cover this is if there is a private corporate, a private company that is this big that they can 
print, they can effectively come up with their own money, then that corporation is already too big for the nations of the world effectively to stop. It seems to me, though, that if there's some kind of reassertion, after all, I mean, Facebook is trying to introduce itself, unlike its original kind of invention of a social network, they are trying to introduce themselves into a field where there really are big currencies and there really are big players and people who have been doing this a long, long time. If they're exposed as being maybe a little smaller than they think they are or we thought they were, it seems to me the nightmare scenario is they need to then double down on the attention economy, realizing that every bit of profit that they're going to make, they're going to have to extract from users' attention. Now, that for me then opens up all sorts of new potential frontiers for profit making that really are terrifying. Yeah, I suppose so. But I think I'm I'm not sure all of that follows from this, you know, and you seem to me, Scott, to be putting a lot of weight on what Mark Zuckerberg said about how he wants to redirect Facebook. And I don't I don't accept that man's words on face value. <laughs> Fair enough. Mm. Yeah. I, I can't argue with that. I, I think this hope that they're about to abandon the attention economy and this is just their way out of doing it by finding a more noble pursuit, I, just, I think that's, mm, that's I, a vain hope, it seems to me. I, I think this is just, an, a, I think they'll keep wanting to command the attention economy. Um, of course. And they'll just, this is just a much more profitable Gig, another gig yeah. to have on the side. The other yeah. thing is I suspect Facebook is becoming far less attractive to young people and, and young people are increasingly using other social media platforms. So it may well be that Facebook sees some writing on the wall for its current business model and it's you know reconfiguring what it does. Mm. But that doesn't mean it's you know, motivated by the high-sounding morals that Mark Zuckerberg has said it is. It's just you know a company looking to reinvent itself to make even more profit than it has before. And you've so, got to remember, ha, ha, Facebook has 2.3 billion active users every month. That's a third of humanity uses Facebook every month. It's already too big, I would argue. Hmm. Everything okay over there, Pollyanna? Or have you, um, <laughs> oh, man. Have you, have you been talked around? Well, look, I'm, I'm so desperate for some kind of recovery of something like a civic culture that nourishes people that I'm willing to suspend disbelief for a little bit longer. All right. You're going to place your hopes in the hands of a mega corporation. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds about right. Okay. Great. Uh, if that's not a sign of the times, nothing at all is. Ross, thank you very much. Um, but that's thanks to your expertise. So we appreciate it. That was a lot of fun, guys. Thanks. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.